Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is T, uh, Trevor. We're talking with uh, prior guests on the show, returning guest, Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Josh Olson. Uh, and you were nominated for uh, a movie that I think a lot of people have seen, A History of Violence. Uh, I, like, I like to think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I recall that movie. I recall that movie as, as well. And um, yeah, anything uh, in particular you'd like us to know about um, yourself and your career that qualifies you? you to talk about today's uh topic which is a follow-up <laughs> which is a follow-up on the on the writer's strike i, I feel like that's well, enough to qualify you but yeah i mean I've, I've been a, i've been a i've been a working writer uh since the 90s i've been a member of the writers guild since 2001 or two i can't quite remember um and uh it's how i make a living i'm primarily uh a feature person um i have sold a couple tv shows uh they haven't been made and i haven't really worked on any other tv that's not true i worked on a um uh, an anthology show once I did one episode, but that's not quite the same thing. So one of the things I think people don't quite get is um, there, there is a kind of dividing line in the Writers Guild just in terms of uh, how we are, um, how the business works for us. And a lot of the things that the Writers Guild is currently striking over impacts TV writers more directly than feature writers, but a lot of it affects us as well. So there's a, a lot of elements of the writer's strike where um, I am literally the last person you need to talk to because, you know, they get into like writing, writing room staff minimums. And I'm like, oh, that sounds fun to me um you know i uh, i either sit alone in my house or sit on my porch with a sometimes writing partner and we, we bang stuff out so um yeah but i've been at it a very long time it's my second strike uh with the guild um and uh i am i am grateful to be taking today off from walking on the line because my feet hurt yeah and you know for people who don't know i was just in uh la i visited josh when i was out there as well and it's very interesting to see what striking looks like there as opposed to here because i've seen it uh both places and it just yeah seems kind of lame here through no fault of its own it's just <laughs> the, the numbers aren't really there you know so like you know sure. so like in brooklyn i ride my bike by and there's like the in the navy yard there's um a studio there and i see like a handful of people but in la like i was driving around la and you and you get reminded like you notice intellectually but you really realize it fully yeah. like in your bones when you're there it's an industry town like uh yeah. i'd be stopping at different lights all different places and this would be a bunch of people like crossing either coming to or from picketing you know and you can right. feel the force of a strike much stronger in uh la than you feel it in new york which yeah, makes I mean, total sense but to see it in action is something different that's interesting yeah because i see a lot of video from new york and it looks like you know various places they have pretty good crowds at least but but it is it's different it's a company town there are a few chunks of the town where you can drive around a couple square mile area and run into like four or five different large groups of people striking another uh building i i personally tend to uh um i'm i'm a movie guy i mean like i grew up on movies everyone who knows me is no one's surprised where i ended up uh, i like to strike primarily i like to be at like paramount is kind of my favorite because a lot of these places look like office buildings yeah but you're you're striking outside paramount studios man you're outside a movie studio it's like <laughs> yeah yeah and we were staying where we were staying was near uh paramount and we actually forgot uh -huh. and we, we drove by it and it felt like looking at like old hollywood glamour yeah some of the other studios like i passed by i guess they're in new places now they look like very corporate they don't really oh yeah well like netflix is just a big glass building you know like yeah we saw netflix yeah. it was very kind of i mean it, it looked kind of dubai-ish almost it looked very space yeah. age <laughs> like I mean, it didn't go as high but it had that kind of uh very glass like glass and steel impersonal look paramount was was a, a gorgeous well, also the thing with paramount is if like if you've been if you know if you like movies you have seen the paramount lot it's it's in like a hundred different movies you know you've yeah seen gloria, you've seen gloria swanson drive through there you've seen all kinds of stuff and uh uh, yeah, it's funny because I went out the first day um, and I went to Netflix just because, you know, I can practically walk to Netflix. And um, yeah, for, it's like it's a big glass building. It didn't fit. And then I got there, too. And and God, don't get me wrong. It's amazing. But it's like it it really hit me for the first time. You read about it, but then you see it and it's 
like, man, our guild, there are so many younger people in our guild now. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, Netflix is this place they all go to. And I'm like, me and my friends are like, well, how do you feel? You want to feel old today? Let's go to Netflix. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for, for better or worse, like Netflix doesn't feel like magic to me. It feels like, you know, there's nothing amazing about that lot. But I don't know, Paramount felt like magic. I got, it's something about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Sorry about the dog. Hang on one second. You're going to cut that shot up. I can't even hear it. Somebody right. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, I'm always surprised too that all those folks at Netflix don't want to come to Paramount. But I guess it's like, but that's what they grew up with, right? They grew up with Netflix. So, yeah. Which it. Is, but it really is. They each, each place has their culture. We've been at it for like 100 days now, more than that. And, and there really are. And we're not, unlike the 07 strike, we're not doing shifts. Like it used to be you had a captain and you went to the same place. I did Warner Brothers every day in the last strike, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. It was exhausting. But um, now you can kind of bump bounce around so if you get bored with one place you go to another and they all have their own culture it's oh yeah really, I'm, sure. I'm sure yeah it's really interesting yeah i'm not crazy about the netflix culture in general just as a piece of entertainment i feel like young people oh they, they grew up with it and it's theirs but i can't see them in 10 years having much nostalgia for it i think it's just gonna be something that they watch to kill the time because i feel like nothing in netflix yeah. is really memorable that you know even a couple years later you know it sticks yeah it, it resonates with people and maybe it's me as, old, as an old person from the outside looking in but I, I don't think I'm wrong. I don't know. No, and you've also hit upon something that that uh, I, I assumed we get to. I thought we'd get to a little bit later, but it's kind of one of the things we're striking about is, you know, what they're trying to create, um, you know, the AMPTP who we're striking against, what they're trying to create, why AI is such an important issue. Um, and the thing with Netflix and, you know, there have been some amazing Netflix films. I won't knock them. There's some amazing TV shows, but they, you know, the ideal scenario with the, with the kind of AI situation, and it's one they're already working towards um, in their sort of non-AI created entertainment is to make content um, and I hate that term but it applies I think to a lot of Netflix stuff is to make content that kind of just comforts and sedates you but that you sit on your sofa you turn on a movie and you probably you're doing something else as well you've got a laptop you got your phone on something you know you're, you're looking at stuff and it's over and you were pleased y- yeah and I don't know you what know I mean I mean, might be too strong a word you, you were placated you were occupied play, play yeah occupy but, but but i think there's got to be a little bit of a positive there's got to be a little bit like yeah eh, eh. you know um, it's like eh, a fan of the and, show. and you wake up the next morning and you're like oh honey how are you oh, how'd you sleep i slept well what did we do last night oh we watched that thing oh wait a minute wait a minute the thing what, what was it it was all right yeah but what was it <laughs> was it did it have was it an action i think it was an action movie <laughs> a fan of the podcast uh joked and i agree with this uh we described the experience of um, watching Netflix and they joke that uh, Netflix should be called second screen because it's something meant to be watched while you're <laughs> surfing <laughs> while you're surfing oh, that's Twitter. Terrible. Yeah, yeah, that's like, so it, bad. It's not meant to be the only screen and it's so true. Mm-hmm. If you try to watch a Netflix show without live tweeting it or 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 looking up an IMDB, just get total immersion. Yeah. It becomes excruciatingly long. Like like you start feeling every minute of the show, you almost need a second screen to um, you know be able to enjoy a, a Netflix Netflix show but one thing I yeah. found with Netflix shows is when a season is over and the second season comes around I'm amazed that this t- taps into what you were saying I'm amazed at how much of the first season I've managed to utterly forget completely forget yeah y- yeah yeah to the point that's I'm wondering like did I watch I'm pretty sure I watched I watched this but uh, that's a whole separate thing man and it's it's yeah. a problem because I like um uh by the way shout out he did never gets enough credit or I guess abuse if you want um everyone thinks it was uh, House of Cards um it was little Steven Van Zandt from uh, the E Street Band who had that TV show Lilyhammer. He used to play Silvio oh, on, on The Sopranos. And Stevie is the guy who said to Ted Sarandos because he had this deal going with this Norwegian thing, and he was like, uh, "Hey, Ted, you should you should run them all at once." And it was like little Stevie Van Zandt, who's uh, oh. <clears throat> yeah, instrumental in destroying apartheid in South Africa and in creating binge watching. So, oh my god, I totally didn't even, I totally forgot that that show was <laughs> even a Netflix show. It's yeah, kind of been uh, forgotten. And it's off Netflix now. It's not on Netflix anymore. But um, but I like that. At the same time, you're right. There is that thing. I mean, like there are shows now where we're like, we've got one. I should, uh, um, uh, uh, Reservation Dogs, which is on yeah. Hulu, which I absolutely love. Yeah, and I've heard great just, about it. Oh, it's so good. And we were like, oh, look, there's three more episodes that we can start watching it. Like when mm-hmm. the season's done, my wife and I'll binge it. But you're right. But the problem with that is it doesn't stay in your head. You know, when you're watching a show every week, that stuff lives with you. But I think part of the problem too is binge watching. I think binge watching could still stay with you if they wrote it the old way 
just bingeable. But for some reason, what I've noticed is binge watching has started changing how they actually write the shows. Like as in mm-hmm. they think, okay, we have a captive audience that's being yeah. propelled by momentum. We don't have to be entertaining right away. Where are they going to go? This is going to sit there and auto load the next. So they get this kind yeah. of complacency, I feel. I'll give you a perfect example. During the pandemic, I started rewatching old shows and I started rewatching Breaking Bad and I totally forgot how that show was paced because, you know, mm-hmm. it, it came out as a weekly show that had to get ratings and yeah. uh, had advertisers. But a half hour into the show, he already has cancer and he's already been reintroduced to Jesse uh, Pinkman and they're starting to sell drugs in 30 minutes. Right. That would not happen in the modern uh No, that would be the movie. last episode of the first season. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, the, the, the very first episode would just be him uh, coughing up his first thing of blood. At the end of the episode, you know, yeah. he, he'd be in a malaise the whole episode then he just cough up a little bit of blood and that'd be the first episode. You know, like, yeah. And I think that's kind of added to the forgettableness of it in that, yeah. like, uh, like, like there was a show called The Witcher I saw and I had to, it's based on a book in a video game, which I've never seen, but I watched the whole first season and I was like, okay, what is the storytelling engine of this show? Like, what is the week-to-week premise? Because this has been a whole season of setup. So I looked it up and it turns out there's three main characters that's not like the video games and book work. There's three of them travel together. And I'm like, oh, so that's what we're building too because by the end of the first season, I don't know if you've seen it, I'm not. only two of the three people even get together. There's, there's a third <laughs> person who still hasn't even come into the fold with the other two yet. Uh, so two people met in the past, another two people met in the present, and two of the other ones haven't even met each other yet. And wow. I guess the next... So I'm like, okay, unless I have an absolute already pre-existing love of the show, yeah. just assuming I'm going to be patient enough to just, you know, sit through Go this thing. This. And, yeah. yeah, and I think that's, a, that's kind of a big uh, problem. Something I was trying to get at in the episode that uh, I did was that I think the writing is much worse now in a way that I think doesn't put the public on the writer's side in a way that they were in the in the because I remember the first time whether you like these shows or not at the time of the first writer's strike there were shows like Lost Heroes a lot of them when they finished people were like oh man this, this actually kind of sucked but in the middle of it people couldn't wait for them to uh, come back uh, people were putting pressure on the studios like oh you know what was happening to our shows I think like Friday Night Lights had a cult fault there was a and I'm saying I don't feel like that exists anymore. I feel like what happens now is you watch a season of a show, but there's first of all, there's such a big content glut. It's hard to miss anything. And it's like, how can I miss you if you if you won't go away? Like Hollywood's always hitting you with content now. That makes right. it hard to miss a show. But then the shows themselves, um, a lot of the shows have a lot of filler or just don't really grab you the same. So a lot of times I forget that I watch the show until I turn on a, a streamer and I see the announcement of the next season. I'm like, oh yeah, this show, I forgot about it. Right. There's a new season. Of it, I might as well watch it, but there's never a period where I'm like, like with Mad Men, I'm like, when is Mad Men coming back? When is Mad Men coming back? When is yeah. uh, Breaking Bad coming back? These new Sopranos, shows, man. yeah, Sopranos was a great one. Th- th- these new ones, it's like they can go in for two years and I forget about them until they come back. And I'm mildly happy they're back, like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. Th- th- this would be nice to return to, yeah. But you know, I totally now I do think that the way I phrased it the first episode was well, let me let me b- before you jump yeah, in because yeah, one, one, one of the reasons, like, because I did uh, I dropped you, I dropped you an email right after that one yeah and forgive me i don't remember because i am uh one of your uh, uh patrons and yeah. one of those episodes was not was a free one right and one wasn't yeah correct? yeah and i don't remember which but but i was like oh man he's doing he's doing the writer strike let me let me listen because this will be interesting and the first half you did knock my socks off you were you were going so deep into like wall street and how that shit works and how it's affected our business that i have friends uh who are writers who are like super nerds and do deep dives they're like they don't go as deep as you did. I was knocked out. That was oh, some wow. amazing so, stuff. That's great. And, to hear. and I've I've pointed it uh, to, towards that or pointed them towards it. And then you get to the writing one, and I know you're about to say that like you kind of went down, to, and, and I get it because I was like, yeah. you did sort of go into a different place, but you kind of started with yeah, but the writing's so bad, and I'm like, oh man, this is. So I'll tell you, there's there's a couple of things like yeah. in, in the day to day world, there's nothing there's nothing screenwriters hate more than people who are like, uh, so uh, you just write the dialogue, right? And it's like, and and, and during a strike, it's that thing of like, yeah, well, the writing's so bad anyway. And you're like, oh, God damn it. Clarify what you were saying, because 
it, it, it was, it was a good, you know, you were, you were making some good points. I think they were just I, in the wrong context, I would say. Yeah. I think I phrased it uh, too badly and I, re- too broadly. And I realized that when I saw people citing the episode to say something that I wasn't saying, like uh, on social media, they'd be like, uh, well, all the writing is uh, bad now. So I don't deserve anything, which I do think a lot of the writing is bad now, but I think it's a particular class of writers who happen to be some of the most uh, vocal people online about about this stuff. But um, I do think a lot of the writers don't write as well as they think they do. And the writers who um, do write well have a cat. Like, I'll give you an example. The streamers, I feel, and this is what we talked about at your house. The streamers, I feel, have been hiring a particular kind of writer. And you made, you made a point that I can't fully say is right or wrong because I don't have the inside knowledge where you felt it's not that the, the writers that are writing this modern stuff are bad, but the suits won't give them the room to be good. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that too, because that's the main... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas for me, a lot of these people, I've read their tweets, I've read their books and articles, and I'm convinced that they're just bad writers, and that's why the um, um, streamers hire them. But I do think there's plenty of great writers out there, but it's almost become a handicap to me to be too good a writer, because I feel like my feeling is if you're too good a writer, you're going to chafe at being asked to um, attach your name to crap. And then if you do attach your name to crap, you're not even going to go out there and be gung-ho uh, in promoting it. Like, like you'll do your job, but, you know, I, I feel like it's hard to fake that if you actually care about uh Well, yeah, but what you're talking, about is, you're talking about the history of the of the industry, and it's it, yeah. it hasn't changed much in this regard. I, it's changed, but but the, the central problem is still the same. And and that is that, um, uh, you know, I, I, I apologize. I'll probably, it probably won't be the only time I do this. I, I may, um, it's, it's a hazard of my job. You tell stories from work and you're a name dropping asshole but uh so apologies in advance um i was at a i was at an oscar nominee party uh back in in uh 06 with the year i went up and i got introduced it's the only time i've ever spoken to him to clint eastwood and um i don't know about you like i'm of an age where like his movies were formative and i was like oh my yeah. god yeah i would see these movies with my dad and all this and i had the most amazing conversation with him and look one of the reasons he's so successful is you know it, it doesn't just happen so i don't know if this was fully sincere or if this was him just falling into like a thing he does when he's around writers but we immediately got into this conversation that he started about how writers are the most important part of the process and he said and he's like he goes uh you know writers are the only ones who actually create everybody else interprets and i was like yeah. mm. and that's that's a reality and you know what we do is we're the only people um and i say this in full recognition i got nominated for adapting a book and i'm not you know i've done a lot of stuff that uh that i have created as well but that's the big one and happy to credit the writers of that book for doing this this part of the job um, but you know you sit in an empty room looking at an empty screen and you make something appear and everything that happens then is somebody else taking it and putting their uh, their spin on it which is the job it's a collaborative medium it's like when it goes well it's the greatest thing in the world you know um, it's why sometimes novelists don't do well when they kind of try to break into screenwriting because a novelist is God there is only the novelist period end of story and you have to love working with other people to make movies and TV shows and um, uh, I have had it go incredibly well it did on history of violence it was just like a dream and i had fortunately been in the business long enough to be able to appreciate that and to be able to like uh come to it the 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 right way to do everything i could to encourage it to keep going in that direction but you get into a ton of situations for the most part where you know and through no fault of their own often there are people who are just not on the same page but who are involved in the project in some significant creative aspect of it and so you end up there's a famous by the way i recommend looking it up if you google um Guyana wrote an amazing piece dissecting the evolution of Ridley Scott's Robin Hood movie um, in which it started as a screenplay. It's kind of a clever idea. A guy wrote a script. I think it was called Nottingham. And the idea was tell it from the point of view of the sheriff of Nottingham and uh, sort of finding out about Robin Hood and dealing with him. And Ridley Scott gets involved and it takes it through all the iterations of like the demands he made. And halfway through, everybody involved realizes that the thing that's driving Ridley, like I hear that idea. I'm like, that's a cool movie. That's an interesting idea. You know, what if, what if the sheriff of Nottingham it's just like this this guy tried to do a job mm. you know Ridley Scott's big thing is he wanted to make a movie about archery he wanted to shoot an arrow like with a camera flying through the air in a way you had never seen before that was like the only thing that really moved him and by the time they're done developing that script it bears no relation whatsoever to the original script and that's kind of like an exaggerated cartoonish version of what happens on almost everything there's a you know I, I believe this firmly and you know I could probably name about four movies off the top of my head that's not true um, the script for every movie you've seen was at least
least slightly better than the movie you did. Um, and it's rare when the when the opposite is true. And some of that is just a function of the medium. It's got to be when you're looking at a page, you have this, you know, the world's your oyster. You have no no budget. Your budget is limitless. You read it, you can see the best version of it. Um, and then other people come in. And then just some of it is the nature of the business where there are, you know, people in positions of power who have, um, certainly in the last 20 years, a lot of what they do is they read all these screenwriting books. Um, the last big one I remember was like called Save the Cat. Yeah. And studio executives read these books, not to learn how to write, but in their minds to learn how to talk to screenwriters. And what happens is you get these books that kind of impose very often very dopey rules that some writers come up with um, based on observation. My favorite, there was one in uh, Sid Field, who was uh, all the rage for many years, had a thing about it. You should never set a movie, set a scene in the movie in a restaurant or the backseat of a car. Like that was just one of his rules because he had seen a hundred movies with scenes in restaurants that were boring. And I'm like, how the fucking Godfather, man? That's like one of the greatest restaurants. You know, also Pulp Pulp Fiction, I think had a lot of both. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, these rules are bullshit. Everybody knows it. If anything, at best, they're sort of like, you know, look into why someone would say that. Look into what happens in the standard scene set in a restaurant where it's just two people talking. You can understand why, you know, you should beware of certain things. But a studio exec, some studio exec will read that. And then that goes on their list. So you hand them, say Pulp Fiction, you hand them the Godfather, you hand them whatever. And they're like, yeah, you're going to have to change that scene in the restaurant. And you're like, why? I had no restaurant scenes. They don't understand the rules. They're just kind of adhering to them because that's the vogue. And they're sitting in a room with someone who learned to write, you know, probably not by reading screenwriting books. And now they're imposing this stuff on them. And, you know, that's another version of kind of what happens. Um, So it's really, really, really hard to get good writing through the process. And um, very often when you do, it then gets attributed to somebody else as well. So, uh, and that is just the writer's life. It's always been the writer's life. Back in, you know, the 30s and 40s, um, you know, we would have jobs on studios. We'd have offices. We, I mean, like, yeah, like I was there. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd come into work on Monday and they'd be like, uh, yeah, you're not you're not working on that movie. You're, you're, you're going to be working on Gold Diggers of 1943 now. And you're like, okay. And now you go right on that thing. And some amazing movies came out of that process. Uh, um, you know, if you ever want to like, Casablanca is the mind boggling example of just a movie that like no one knew what they were doing. They had all these different writers on. They didn't even know how the damn thing was going to end. And now you're like, oh, it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, that can work. It really can. Um, but but anytime I hear somebody sort of bagging on the writing, it's like, yeah, man, of course there's bad writers in Hollywood. Of course there are. Um, but, you know, there's there's people who aren't great at their job at every line of work and they deserve to eat too. But but when it's used to kind of dismiss what we're dealing with right now, it gets really frustrating because we're getting it on both ends. You know what I mean? We're like busting our ass trying to get good writing through a process that seems designed to destroy good writing. And then when it gets out, it's good enough that people get excited about it and, you know, they want to see movies and shit. But then the instant we go on strike, it's like, ah, writing's terrible. You guys suck. And it's like, oh, man. <laughs> you know? I, I feel one problem that could be happening, uh, but this requires a lot of speculation on my part. Um, I feel like you come from a generation that is very different than a generation that's kind of breaking in now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, for example, like uh, I've been on like um, this is this screenwriting website that a lot of people use. I forget. It's kind of like a blog. I forget what it is. It's very popular, but it's kind of like this industry website. It gives you a lot of tips and the tips that it gives aspiring screenwriters sound a lot like, you know, Save the Cat, Sid Field, Robert McKee, sure. you know, it talks about like the hero's journey, like the, like the whole Christopher yeah. Vogler stuff where it's like uh, he distills the hero's journey into like 12 steps and it says, no, here's how to use a hero's journey to pump up, to, to punch up your script and get it bought. And I feel like it's become a little more um, trendy for like people wanting to break into um, writing to actually become that kind of writer. No, that's 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 always been there. I mean, that, that yeah. scratch, that's not always been there, but it's always been there for a long, the duration of my career. Well, like when I, like I said, Sid Field was the big one um, yeah. when, when I got in. And then, you know, as the internet started to kind of become a thing, um, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm old. Um, oh, film school, know, re- there's film school rejects, by the way. Uh, oh, film school rejects. Those guys have been around forever. Yeah, yeah. And, and lately, like, they, they really cater to that mindset of, like, here's a formula you need. I'm sorry, but, but, but go, yeah. on. go on. Go on, go uh, on. All I want to say is, is, if you're listening right now, and Trevor, you should just too, Google film school rejects and Josh Olson. Okay. Take, take, take a minute. Do it right now. I just, I want to. Why Josh Olson is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, those guys have been around for a long time. Because uh, that, that article goes back to, what, like, 2009. Nine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but see, see, like, like, 
like like this is perfect example what I mean. Like I feel like generationally you and your ethic. I, I think you come from a different school. I think a lot of people come from a different like, school. Yeah, that's not generational because those guys are like my age. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a different yeah. school, but I feel like that school has become kind of ascendant. It's it's always been there. Um, the internet has helped kind of spread this stuff around. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was we were talking earlier. I wrote a piece. It, it's depressing because I've done some really great writing that I'm proud of, and like I said, you know, history of violence. But but I know for a fact that when I die, the thing that'll be um, in my in my obituary, the first thing they're going to do is an article. Trevor and I were talking about before. Um, I wrote a piece for the Village Voice called "I Will Not Read Your Fucking Script." That that went viral. Um, uh, I, I had no control over it, and it was just basically me finding trying to find a way to tell people like, don't harass complete strangers to read your screenplay for you. You're an asshole if you do. That was it. And uh, yeah, the film school rejects guys. We're not we're not pleased with it. They felt that um, you know if you're in a room with Steven Spielberg, you should come up and give him your script, and he should read it for you. Was that kind of there? <laughs> so. Um, yeah, yeah, but that type of school of thought, I think it's in every kind of media industry now. It's this mm -hmm. kind of um, anti-gatekeeping thing, this idea that everything should be for everybody. And I have become, I was someone that was very into the democratization of everything. Mm -hmm. I saw the, the glut of crap that we've gotten. And now I'm like, okay, maybe there's a balance that needs to be, like, there needs to be some type of uh, gatekeeping with decorum or or some kind of um, working on your craft on your own before you even start, you know, trying to break in. You know what I mean? Like before, I don't. Yeah, I mean, there's it, it gets in a weird like all this stuff is is there are problems and and the solutions are imperfect at best. I know who is I think was it Jamal Fanaka who's a director who did movies like Penitentiary got in trouble with a Directors Guild a while back. A bunch of other writers as well, and and he had a really good point was that um I can't remember if, was he suing the guild I could I could be getting this wrong and I, I don't want to but but there was an assertion being made and it was quite correct that there is a problem with the majority of feature film director jobs being um, given kind of through, uh, you know, the, the head of a studio is like, hey, we're going to do this film. Oh, let's call, you know, let's call Josh Olson. We know him. We've worked with him. And as a result of that, you end up with nothing but people who look like me directing movies. You know what I mean? And it made it really hard for talented outsiders, uh, people who've done, you know, tremendous work, just not for studios to get those jobs when they should have. An, and, and his point, their point was simply like, they should have a shot at those jobs. And like, what do you do to combat that? Like, how do you how do you create rules and regulations that systemize um, that sort of thing? And and yeah, then then you get into this like you end up in a situation where they're like, okay, well now we're gonna just we're just interviewing women for this job. Yeah, exactly. It, it was a real problem, but the solution I think didn't correct it in the right way. But here, so here's my question because I, I I agree. I also like I I don't know how you do correct it in the right way. Um, me, me neither. I think a big problem is what we're hoping for requires a gatekeeper who knows what is actually good and bad. And I think there's less of that than never because I, I used to read a lot of old Hollywood bios and a lot of, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, I, I'm reading into like old old Hollywood, like the whole golden era. I think it, the movies were just better back then. Um, but one thing that always kind of struck me is there's this kind of stereotype of the suit or the exec who knows nothing about, you know, art or whatever. And anytime a suit, you know, involved himself in the creative process, it gets worse. But one thing I've learned from like studying a lot of Hollywood history is there's a lot of times where the studio chief or the executive actually improved uh, a movie. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, my, my favorite, my favorite note of one of my favorites of those of all time is Bob Evans at Paramount. I think Francis Ford Coppola turned in a two hour cut of Godfather and Evans is like, what the fuck is mad? This make it longer. Mm, that's, that's <laughs> like you never hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect, it's you know? a perfect yeah. uh, example. Uh, like, uh, and I think a difference is like back in the days, um, like you read some of these old heads of you know Hollywood whatever it might be a family of Jewish immigrants you know from like Russia or something and they had a really long last name uh, the youngest kids in the family were trying different things that really weird hustles and at some point like I think uh, the Warner Brothers one of them was like a furrier or something they uh -huh. had like, this weird trade just trying to find something that works and then they get into the, the, the nascent field of filmmaking at its um, you know when it's turning around but they did all these odd jobs in entertainment 
Uh, right. I, I think they did some jobs in vaudeville or whatever. And they said, you know what? I think this is going to be what we're going to stay in. And yeah. over decades, they did nothing but that. And they had a genuine um, they love. They love movies. To, yeah, they, they love movies. They genuinely loved it. And also, when you're working it that long, you can't help but pick up. You've seen everything that's happened. You have an mm-hmm. actual, you develop a sense of the creative, you know. But whereas mm-hmm. now, it's interesting. Like, they'll put someone ahead of Sony. The person has an MBA from Wharton. And they just came from a totally different type of company. Like, you know, this person was the head of um, esports in this company. Then they were at right. Nike. And then they worked their way up to, now I'm the head of um, Warner or Sony. And, and isn't that someone who came up through decades of movies. They just right. got a business degree and they just did. Um, yeah, well, like David Zaslav's the perfect example. Like, yeah, I, you know, I, I keep saying that friends of the line, I'm like, you know, 15 years ago, whenever it was when we were striking last, it's like, sure, there are these corporate scumbags running the studios, but there are corporate scumbags who wanted to make movies. Yeah. Like every, I used to think everyone could relate to that, you know? And I get like, David Zaslav's running Warner's. He sold Casablanca. Like, that's that's not a guy who gives a shit about anything. I'm like, I don't yeah. think that's crazy, man. That's like your, but but I, w- I would say the issue more is, it's not even just understanding good and bad. It's understanding the issues. When you get to what we were talking about before about, you know, I, I sort of made it about representation, I guess, but you know, the, the problem with, and I guess it's any system, but sort of Hollywood is that the people who are tasked with trying to change these problems of, you know, getting more kind of diversity in the creative space don't understand the issues. No. So, you know, they think, I mean, I had a joke where it's like, you know, what, 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 what do you mean we're not diverse? Like, you know, four of the seven Harvard grads on our writing staff are black. Yeah. Like, yeah. You're not, you're not getting it, but we did, you know, yeah. And, and I don't know, but it, it would help if they understood why they were doing this stuff. It's not about just having more people of color directing movies. How about like more people who aren't, you know, just white guys crewing films as well, like on a, just a working level. And how about points of view? It's like, it's not enough to just, cause the problem is the people who are getting picked are for the most part still getting filtered through the same sensibility. It's like, you might be seeing a lot of really interesting black directors say to, to, you know, whether or not you're going to hire them, but the person who's doing the hiring is, is still someone who looks like me essentially, or, or a white woman who's just trying to kind of, you know, who has a very narrow idea of what's appropriate. And so it doesn't matter that you're meeting some really interesting wild talent because you're only hiring the ones who make the movies that you think are appropriate still. Like, uh, here's a, here's a great, uh, here's a great example is, uh, Michael Eisner, whether you like Michael Eisner or not, some people say he was a huge asshole and, you know, some people really liked him, but, uh, he went to school at a small, um, liberal arts college, I believe. And he studied English literature and theater. So from mm-hmm. college, he was into English literature and theater. He got his first summer job working as a page at NBC in the sixties. Okay. And then, uh, he moved to the programming department of CBS where they put him in charge of, uh, placing ads in children's shows. Then yep. he, he moved to the offices of Barry Dillon. Uh, as an assistant to the ABC's national programming director, then became vice president for daytime programming in 71. Like, he kept doing stuff in entertainment in every stage of the business until he uh, basically ended up, um, you know, as the president of uh, Paramount. And, you know, he oversaw a lot of successes there. But by the time he gets to Disney, he's seen so many hits and failures and been involved in, like, the creation of so much stuff. He's a suit, but he still has some kind of, um, you know... Oh, my God. He knows the business inside out. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I- I- yeah, including the including the creative, the the, the yep. creative side, and then you read some of the people who become, um, you know, who, uh, so Kevin Sujihara, who was the head of um, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers for a while. You look at you look at his thing. Um, he graduated MBA from Stanford, and then the first thing he did was launch a Quick Quick Tax Inc., a tax preparation company. <laughs> it's, it's like, huh? Okay, you know. Then he just did uh, various things, and then he did theme. He was at Warner Brothers, but he did theme parks, which doesn't really translate to um doing Not creative quite the stuff. same thing yeah 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 i feel like what happens now is you have people who are in charge of the movie departments who only know how to buy things or inherit things and then they hire mm-hmm. someone else to explain to them what they now run they think okay you know i know the universal principles of business i just need and i know what to do with quote-unquote product i'm gonna delegate to someone else explaining what the product is i'm gonna use these universal right. rules of product and the actual nuts and bolts of what's unique about the product is not that important i can just hire someone so but the problem is if you don't know anything about the product you're not even qualified to hire the expert you know what i mean right. it's like yeah it's like <laughs> right it's, it's like me not knowing much about fixing cars trying to pick between four people who's the best car expert and it's like right. you could tell me anything i don't have the i don't even have what it, the tools to judge a good expert and i think that's how and i, I don't want to put you in a position where i name names and their names that you 
know or you're friends with and I put you in a weird position. So the names you're going to mention, let's say up front, Josh is not co-signing or disagreeing <laughs> with any of them. But <laughs> an example I use is someone like um, J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. He's, 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 he's the guy that you hired now to reboot anything. And you can tell the people in charge of these companies, they don't know what is what. They're just like, okay, I now own Star 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 Trek. What do I do Star with Trek, it? Yeah. I don't know what Star yeah. Trek is. Uh, it's space stuff. Well, um, you know who knows what the geeks like? That J.J. Abrams guy. Let's let's hire him to do, do Star Trek. Uh, Star Wars. Right. Hire him again. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, this thing. Well, hire him again. He, he, you know, he just becomes the guy. And I think that's why a lot of, there's nobody in a position to pick good writing because these people that have no interest in anything creative. They don't well, he's also, ho- yeah, but that, yeah. to a certain extent, and I'll, I'll make a defense with the, please, the understanding that I, I come down way more on your side of the thing. Uh, of course. Yeah, of course. Cr- creatively, passionately, everything else. But like the understanding that I, that I get, and I think the, the, the um, um, he's a sort of example of how it's worked for a long time. You know, he's very successful. He's a very successful creative uh, character, you know, mostly as a writer and, and, and showrunner, and then and then as a director. Um, but but writing was his thing, and he was you know he created some some very successful shows. And so he's a guy when you're sitting there and you're like, well, let's you know we're going to do Star Trek now. What do we do? We need to talk to some one person has the idea of like let's let's start from scratch and let's find someone who's passionate about it, who's you know understands it, who's got a track record, and you know they either call JJ or he gets wind of it but either way he's on the phone and he's like hey I really want to do this and I'm like holy shit it's JJ Abrams yeah and you what you don't have potentially and I don't want to I don't want to knock what what he did with it but you probably don't have somebody there in the studio who's like um got great passion for the material who's gonna like kind of put it to him hard about like maintaining the the you know the character and the essence of what people love about the show it's about making it a hit but that's that's always kind of been the way yeah and, totally. you know, say what you will about him he is he has been I remember when I first got out here the late 80s he um uh the first time i ever heard of him he had a big there was this whole spec script thing going on for many many years where people would sell scripts for tons and tons of money and um uh, that that kind of dried up but uh um he was an early superstar in that world because he most of your listeners are gonna have to google this word he wrote a script called philofax and do you even know what a philofax is trevor <laughs> i used to i used to know but i forgot it's a sort of i can't even really describe it's sort of a uh it, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's so it, it, it's um it's a compact it, it, organizer it's like a rolodex type of thing it's kind of yeah it's like a book you carry around it's pre-digital and it's like yeah it's got your rolodex in it it's got your date book in it it's not much it's just jamming a bunch of office stuff into one kind of leather bound you know medium-sized book yeah and, and, and surprisingly it still exists uh i'm a man well, look, but uh for a hot minute everybody had filofax isn't certainly everybody in, uh, and and jj was a guy and this is a certain kind of intelligence um uh that i i must respect he was like oh these things are everywhere um he quickly wrote a script about a guy who loses his file of facts that's it that sounds like that sounds like him like i think he's good and, at that. He, and he's he sold it for can- a fortune yeah, but it got made candy. it got made into a, a movie by the time it had come out file of facts had already kind of passed so they had to change the title i can't remember what it's called but it ended up being a jim belushi film called like hard to handle or something like that but it's like this is a guy but but you know that's what you do and i think that broke him in i could be completely wrong i hope no one sues me but like there's a writer clearly a good one um who's going i gotta i gotta get in i gotta get set up i gotta get established what you don't do if you're him is you don't write uh you know your your uh 385 page biography of ee cummings yeah you do that when you're big you write file effects and you get in you know so yeah i i don't have any problem with his business sense or whatever and i like some of the things that he's written i just think sometimes he gets put on things that he's not quite because he's not passionate about star trek he straight up said it you know but uh, yeah and so, I guess, so, but- so, so so he made it into basically star wars he, he just did it like note for note like star wars but i feel yeah. like um the kind of person you're talking about uh that doesn't exist anymore would, would be the kind of person that would say you're a good writer but not for this you know right. like uh you're not a one-size-fits-all writer like you know like but these people just know the name like, okay this is a name just just give it to him the name will uh carry right. it so it's like his last string of stuff has been kind of um underwhelming but he'll just keep getting the jobs anyway and I, and to me i think that's kind of that's kind of problem uh, like for example like uh damon lindelof did a movie recently that i quite enjoyed i um it wasn't it? it wasn't <laughs> the deepest movie in the world but like i watched it and i and i enjoyed it the politics were a little kind of shit libby but they what, weren't what was bad. the film uh let me tell you right now i think i had one word um that's like t- you loved it oh <laughs> uh, what was it what was it called oh the hunt it was it was oh, called it was know. called the hunt um okay. i could see some people not liking this movie like like if you if you watch this movie 
told me you didn't like it, I wouldn't go to the mattresses fighting you on it, you know? But I personally right. found it um enjoyable. And I watched it very objectively because I didn't know it was him. I just watched it. And, you know, I wasn't bored. Uh, It had some good twists to it, whatever. But I absolutely hated his Watchmen. I thought his Watchmen was... He did he did, was not qualified to be interpreting Alan Moore. He did not understand it. Um, I actually ended up having uh, a conversation with him in a convoluted way. And he thought, like, Alan Moore was a libertarian. And libertarian. I was like, <laughs> and I was like, how are you adapting this thing? And you don't even understand his, his politics. I didn't even correct that. I was like, I oh, forget it. What's even, the, what's even the point? But uh, that's kind of what I think happens now is you have people in charge who don't even understand. Yeah, but again, and I'll, I'll make yeah. a, I'll make a, a, a defense there. And um, I, I will say, f- for the record, when when um, Trevor and I kind of met, I used to do a podcast with Dave Anthony called The West Wing Thing, where we dissected every episode of The West Wing for its terrible neoliberal politics. And uh, uh, Trevor came on several times. So I'm like, I, it's not like I'm, I, I haven't got a record of criticizing stuff uh, in my own industry. Um, but uh, I did, when that show was on, it was just like everything I could, I had to like refrain from, you know, calling you or somebody else they knew who had a, a good show. Going, Can I come on and talk about how much I hate Watchmen? <laughs> but, um, and, and not even for the adaptation of Alan Moore, it was for, for the, but, but I, I, was, I it, will, was it, was it the politics that you weren't? Yeah. Doing? Yeah. I mean, to me, it was like, it was like, are you, it's, it's, you've read a smattering of black history. You've read Taneezy Coates and don't quite understand him. And now you're going to do a thing. And I'm like, I'm watching the show that supposedly, I don't know, was it sort of like, you know, racially, I hate the phrase, you know what I'm saying? I'm using a short no, but like I, I know a, a woke show. Yeah. And, and your heroes are all cops. You're making the case that because cops are, is a dangerous job that they all need to wear masks and hide their identities. And I'm like, how the fuck is this not a white supremacist fantasy? Oh yeah. So, yeah. And, and, I mean, but, it was just crazy but, shit, but, but, but I will but, say, mm-hmm. yeah, but no, but, but, but again, I think that's just a matter of, of, you know, and again, it was a hit. So who are, who are we to say, but, but of, of the wrong person on the wrong thing. But I will say the reason we're talking about Star Trek today. I mean, yeah. I, I was there as a kid. I remember when it was like, Oh my God, they might make a movie. They might make a movie. And then they made a movie and the movie was terrible. Oh, it was like, so that's bad. it. Star Trek totally done. It totally didn't understand. The source it killed though. it. It killed yeah. it. You are never going to see Star Trek again, but maybe, Oh wait, they're going to do one more. They're going to have way less money. And they hired a fucking guy to direct it. And, and it worked on the script. Nicholas Meyer, who was not a Star Trek fan and wrath of Khan is the only reason we are still talking about Star Trek today. Cause that mm. was a massive hit. It kicked everything off. And that's because they handed it off to somebody who, you know, made a case for himself to do it, but did not walk in the door as a big Star Trek fan. And, oh, oh, and, and I would just say, yeah. so in some ways, being a fan can actually hurt you too, because it depends so. on yeah. what kind of fan you are. If you're someone who just wants to do Easter eggs and uh, explanations that, you know, will make our casual fans. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you this too. Yeah. It's been 40 years, so spoiler alert, folks, but yeah. a Star Trek fan would not have written a movie where Spock dies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah. and yet, holy shit. So, but, but, yeah, but it's not being a super fan and having respect for the material like you can have come in cold and know nothing but you have a respect for the material and I think uh, I don't think you have to like it but I think you have to at least um, respect it and be curious about it you know and I think uh, that's why Wrath of Khan uh, works you know he went back he didn't say what a lot of people do now is how can I fix this thing I didn't even like in the first place I just want right. to use it to build my name but I think it was racist sexist misogynistic and I'm going to spend a whole l- 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 like for example what he did to me is different than what say um, uh, the other guy did for Last Jedi where he's trying to do constant corrections as to how he thinks you know Lucas could have been better and it's like okay you should make your own movie then why are you working in the universe or something uh, to uh, say why the whole bible of it is 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 wrong so so this this is where this is where Trevor like cuts me off throws me out the shell loses my number <laughs> so here's here's so I saw I saw Star Wars at theaters as a kid uh, the first one Star Wars it's called not New Hope Part 4 or whatever the I part. agree uh, loved it loved it uh, um, Empire Strikes Back loved it Return of the Jedi you're like ah, they're kind of going the wrong direction like we're getting older the movies are being made for younger audiences um, I checked out when Lucas redid and you know what is it decades later brings out the new Star Wars like he's totally changed totally and I was like I had, I had not I didn't go to any I didn't see any of the prequels I didn't see any of the revised original ones and then um, uh, my uh, sister started having kids and every Christmas I would take them it was a big deal Uncle Josh would take them to some big movie they wanted to see and so I ended up seeing the new Star Wars like I think it started with a J.J. Abrams one um, with my nieces and nephew who are kids. And I will tell you this, Trevor, and this is probably why people hate it because I am not the guy. I'm not your Star Wars guy. Yeah. Uh, I, lo- I loved Andor. That was fucking amazing. Also by someone who doesn't give a shit about Star Wars.
stars, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the one you just talked about, that is uh, the first the first Star Wars movie I have enjoyed since uh, Empire Strikes Back is the Ryan Johnson one. <laughs> wow. I mean, everyone's a t- I it mean, is the it, only one I've liked. Very, it is a very polarizing movie. So, and to the know. point that like, I mm-hmm. don't know, like, I don't get around. I'm like, whatever, you like what you like. I missed, I don't get why people hate it so much. Is it that? Is it just that they were fucking with like what their perception of Star Wars was? Like, um, you don't like it. What, what see, is it? See, is see it, this, this is tough because it's going to open up a whole or should we not even go there okay i will just i will just say this it undermines a lot of the narrative core of the first uh trilogy to like i don't think you should have the person whose whole journey was like this person's whole journey is seeing you know the good in people and not giving up and everything um now you have them being the guy who um just gave up and was gonna kill his uh like okay his father was a genocidal maniac right and everyone was saying kill this guy um and he was um so against the idea of things just being black and white good and evil that he was like uh no i think they're still um good in him i'm gonna try mm-hmm. to save him and people were like you are stupid and mm-hmm. at the end he finds that last bit of uh good he didn't just molly whop the guy he you know <laughs> right. sure he goes, yeah. he goes in there and he can't overpower him but he finds what uh bit of good is in him and he gets proven right so to, to him have a whole movie where the point is him learning that there's no such thing as black and white good and evil is silly because he was never that guy it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the first trilogy and for him to be the kind of guy who his nephew has a hint of badness in him as like a 13 year old kid he jumps to murdering him in his sleep it's like okay how did he go from seeing the good in somebody who actually committed genocide and not killing him but he's gonna kill a 13 year old over a hint of something bad in the dream like it would have been an okay movie in a different universe but it ends up undermining to me the whole narrative crux of the first um trilogy i'm not saying the story that he shouldn't tell is fine to right. tell but it just you shouldn't undermine the original movie right, in a way that just seems like you don't understand it you have him learning does stuff. Here, does, and here's the thing and, and i don't yeah. want to bog your show down in this yeah, yeah. but i'm just like i remember you know all of was enjoying it in a couple of cool scenes um doesn't he sort of come back from that though by the end or am i wrong because i feel like that's um, an interesting place for an old luke skywalker to, to kind of go he does come back from it i just feel he shouldn't have been there without explanation if you give me an explanation oh. as to how he got there isn't he 60 I guess but then like it just takes away a lot of that original thing that he conquered if you can just with time just become uh, a child murderer it would just I'm not against anything that's earned you know right. and I, I just felt like that, that's why I can't argue too much because I don't remember it's earned or not but that feels like that that at least is a reasonable journey to me where that character has become that person and then by the end of the movie he's reconnected with his original values but if it's not if it's not set up well and paid off well I'm, I'm, I, I, I get your point I mean it's very polarizing and a lot of people yeah all that I love, know yeah. a lot of people love the movie so i can't say my way is totally oh you'll notice totally i didn't bring right. this up when we were on my porch and you could lunge at me man i'm waiting <laughs> to three thousand miles away <laughs> no no i'm not i'm not passionate that much about <laughs> about it you know like uh because 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 at least you know you can have a reason thing about it where you say hey um i'm not that acquainted with the original movie i enjoyed it for what it was but i want to get passionate when people try to like straight up change the mm-hmm. nature of the original to make it fit where they're like oh he always wanted to kill kids like people argue like that that's when i get mad when you, when you actually right. make up stuff to uh yeah that's the only time i ever get like uh obsessed when people argue in a disingenuous way to uh stick, stick to their point but i mean going back to what you didn't like about the episode i do think you weren't totally wrong like i was saying that a lot of the oh modern, thank you yeah yeah <laughs> oh you know what mo- you're yeah interpreting what you were saying yes yeah 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 i was saying a lot of the modern writing i think is bad but i do think some people took me as saying all the modern writing is bad and therefore these writers don't deserve um, anything, which is what I wasn't saying, which is how I saw some people taking it. Like, for example, I totally agree that you should get transparency in streaming numbers. I think it's ridiculous that... Oh, that's um, insane. Yeah, that, that, that's insane. Yeah. But what I do disagree is a lot of these people are convinced that the streaming numbers are being hidden from them because they're so successful and, and the studios are holding their money. And I have no doubt that the studios are corrupt enough to do that. But I do think, no, a lot of the stuff is actually flopping. And there's a handful of stuff... Oh, no, that- I, I guarantee you yeah both both are true exactly no, no that's what i was gonna say that there's a handful yeah. of stuff that is widely successful on streaming that that people are getting withheld a good sum from yeah but a lot of you guys who think it's you are not that are not that guy like like and that um you have to know what you're getting in for like 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 uh i think the transparency should be there because i'd rather um people who deserve to get paid get paid but i think people should temper their expectations and realize if these things were 
killing it across the board as much as you think they are, they'd be quick to trumpet it because at the end yeah, of the day- they can't open the door because then they got to show the other. But but that's more about you know if you write a show for Netflix, it's a bomb. Yeah. Um. You, you know, it's it's always funny. Like people have such strange perceptions of our business, and you know, you get hired to write something, you get paid. Um. Like and you're you're getting paid whether or not it gets made, and then you're getting paid again if it gets made. There's like a production bonus. Um. That's in films at least, in TV it's a little bit different. But then you're getting residuals is the old the old model. Yeah. So you know, um, you're getting paid when you're brought onto a show that hasn't aired yet. You know, a, a new show. Um, they can't base your pay rate, nor should they, on how they think the show will do. It's like they they pay you what you get paid to do this. The where you where you fall into bonuses and stuff is in success and in TV. You know that that was a great thing. If your show ran forever, you were making money off of it forever. I don't think any nobody's arguing that like we should get more. We should get some version of streaming residuals that are better than what we're getting on things that bomb. But we should very much be getting a piece of the action when we have a movie that's being seen by a billion people. Yeah, I totally and they have, agree with they that. They have sort of built-in things that they do. They're just not, they're not enough, you know? Um, and and they seem a little arbitrary to me, but there are people who are far more expert on this who could who could talk to that that subject. But yeah, you should be getting some kind of form of res- streaming residual based on the success of, of the work you do. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I just have noticed that some writers, I don't know if they really believe this or they're just uh, saying it because it, it plays well, but you know, they'll be like, yeah, I worked on this this thing for Netflix or Hulu and I don't know how much I made and they're robbing me. I'm like, okay, they're robbing somebody, but I've seen that show. <laughs> no one watched that show. Yeah. You're you're not among uh, the rob, but that's no reason for this not to be a fight to have. But like because, I know, yeah, no, and yeah. I know that like, you know, writers on Orange is the New Black aren't getting significant, you know, streaming residuals off of that and, and you know, there's a show that helped make the, the yeah. network. Um, and that happens a lot too. And a lot of people did watch that one. So that's a perfect. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. That, that thing actually yeah. had a, you know, it was a cultural touch point and, and people clearly were watching it, but yeah, you get to these weird areas where you're like, we can only assume certain things about the success of certain shows based on not even really social media either. Cause that can be pretty oh, yeah. know, weighted, but just kind of like a general sense of, of the zeitgeist and, you know, has it seeped out to the culture? And, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. Uh, you said Watchmen was a hit. It actually wasn't. Uh, really? I was shocked to notice too because they marketed it as if it was a big hit. Right. I think the first episode actually got decent ratings, but it just kept going down and down episode by episode. Oh, and you have to really dig to find out how bad it did. Um, but it was getting under, if I remember correctly, it was getting under a million per episode by the time it mm. ended, which wow. for that price is not uh, very good, but it was very critical. But, but they're also, but then you, yeah, critical, you know, you look at, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. You look at like how many people watch Mad Men. I mean, I think there were like 17 of us watching it when it first aired yeah but we all bought a new car at every episode you know what i mean that's how that works. yeah yeah, yeah but, totally. I mean, but also but, but, but it was but, but, great but, but, it was like a lost leader in a sense that it was like critically acclaimed and got awards and it brought attention to the network um but also i don't think it cost that much um watchman was expensive yeah watchman was expensive yeah yeah yes some shows might not get that much uh in, in terms of ratings especially initially i believe by the end Mad Men was doing decent ratings but it's all right but a lot of those things are they yeah. really are about kind of prestige which helps and that's yeah. also by the way a different time or a different perception of of how to do business there were there were shows like that always where you know and i i you know it, it might explain my career somewhat but that you know some of my favorite tv shows were ones that um you know people talk now they're like well no one watched them they came on but they're so you know i was like a huge hill street blues fan and i watched homicide and i watched the wire and these were all shows that struggled to stay on every season and only stayed on every season because somebody at the network believed in them they 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 were getting great critical responses they were getting the bare minimum of an audience and then someone of the network was like, no, we need to do good work like this because it's good for us. And they also understood the value of like looking back. It is worth something. Well, it used to be worth something uh, if you were HBO, which I don't know, isn't a thing now, right? And but if you were HBO, you're like, yeah, man, we did The Wire, we did Deadwood, we did Soprano. These are things that that yeah. build your brand and and are you know pay for themselves over decades. Uh, do you remember the phrase? It's not TV, it's HBO. And oh, yes. I feel like that was such a telling phrase, like this idea that uh, we're something better than TV. We're like uh, prestige. And I feel like HBO yeah. Max so killed the brand of HBO because HBO just ended Max. up being everything that was ever owned by uh, Warner that it purchased at any yeah. point in its existence. And uh, Changing th- the name to Max, that has got to be like, I think the only thing you could do worse would be like if Disney changed their name to Hustler 
barely legal. <laughs> like, it's like, what do you, you actually have one of the two or three entertainment brands in the world that just immediately, when people think of it, they go, oh, quality. It's like, I don't care. HBO had 10,000 hours of terrible TV. Yeah. They had more than enough great TV that when you thought of them, you're like, oh, it's an HBO show. I'll watch that. And, and in a way, they did the worst of all worlds. They uh, made HBO, HBO Max, which um, I think kind of diluted some of the impression of quality, but it still um, was thought of as, you know, a, a place still of HBO. quality. Yeah, it was still HBO. Now it's just Max. Yes. Yeah, so, which so, like, so now makes me think of Cinemax, which is like, okay, what is it? It's 2 a.m. and I'm watching softcore porn now. That's like... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So so, so you, you diluted the uh, prestige of the name HBO and for nothing, because you ended up uh, removing it from the name of the, of the service. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, okay, Mad Men, the finale I'm looking, you got like uh, 3 million, which is not Yeah, great. for the finale, that was... Yep. Yeah, 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 where Sopranos got like 11 million. So, you know, yeah. it wasn't as great as that, but 3 million is still nothing to uh, sneeze yeah, yeah. at. But, but, yeah, these but that was for the now, last... Yeah, yeah, for the last one. I, I think it averaged 1 million that season. And for the last one, it jumped up to 3 million. But you have shows yeah. now that are getting like... Uh, they're like highly rated. And you look, and they're like getting the mid-six figures. Like it's uh, oh. pretty brutal. Like uh, Watchmen was doing sub 1 million by the end, if I remember wow. um, correctly. So then they... And every one of them was on Twitter. Yep, yep. And they spun it in a very interesting way. After it won all those Emmys, they said... Uh, yeah, he's he's uh, walking away from it, um, mm -hmm. you know, for whatever. But from what people I know working at HBO says, some people told me, no, it actually got canceled, but they did a fake type of... Yeah. Oh, no, that show had been a hit. You'd never have read that article. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. Everyone was like, oh, it has to be deliberate because who'd walk away from a hit? And then I found out later, oh, it's no. uh, that's 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 what happened. It was hemorrhaging viewers every single... So I, th I think uh, it might have been like... Um, it started like at 7 million by the end it was like under 800,000 mm -hmm. yeah yeah so I think it's not just that it was doing badly but it started high and then was hemorrhaging so people were just kind of not really um, digging it but I think it's kind of a problem with Hollywood now too is um, like they hide how bad they're doing a lot of the times because if they don't um, their shareholders are going to be um, pissed and I think they're more scared of the shareholders knowing how bad things are doing rather than worried about having to pay people their fair share not that they want to pay people that to your, to your point about sort of bad writing, which again is something I just I need to uh, we we need to stay on. I think so. I'm looking at uh, one, two, three, four, five. There's quite a few writers on Watchmen, um, and none of them outside of uh, the showrunner, pretty much, has has the liberty to take the show somewhere else. I totally agree with that. And nobody, you know, and you don't get into. It's kind of what I was saying with J.J. Abrams. It's like you don't break into the business. Some people do. Every now and then, somebody does, and it's always amazing. Um, um, you know, uh, but you generally don't break into the business, especially as a writer, with a great, esoteric, unique script that has its own voice that's about something that challenges an audience. Um, you usually have to kind of come in through the front door and you have to kind of work your way to that position. And so, you know, I don't care if you're the, the best writer in the world or the worst writer in the world, you get a shot at being on this HBO show from the guy who did Lost and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? Hey, I have an affinity for Watchmen and I like Lost and this, that, and the other thing, but you're not going to get to like really, really shine in that situation um, uh, unless you can write under all those constraints, unless you can write your best stuff under all those constraints. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be in a room while people are breaking a story that Lindelof has control over. You're going to be, you know, handed uh, an episode that you have to write that's going to fit an outline that the room came up with that was supervised by him. And then he is, and this is usually the way he's going to, um, especially in shows with more distinct voices, he's going to do a, a rewrite on your script that is not because it's bad that's just the nature of things like it's it's um it's tv you know the reason some of the best shows some of your favorite shows feel like they're written by the same person is that the showrunner does a pass on you know what i mean yeah and and um that's just the reality of it so that's that's you know and you can't you can't be precious you can't be like well i wouldn't have written that episode or i'm too good for this it's like you're getting in and if you do well on that show and the show does well and you get hired on one or two more eventually you're running a show yourself and now it's now you get to shine um but uh, but even then, you're sort of like hampered by all these constraints. Like 
to, to get back to your thing of like, who would, who would endure that? That's a good question. Um, a lot of us, <laughs> you know, it's like, cause you get, you get, and I'll tell you, there's a couple of ways they get you. One is, um, if, if it's just about the money for you and you do it right, you can make a lot of money, but there's also always the possibility, everything you work on, um, you know, and, and I can tell you every project I've ever been on and every writer I know can do the same thing. The moment when you realized it was going south, like yeah. you usually know you, you walk in, you walk into a meeting going, oh man, this thing's so great. And you walk out going, oh dear. And that's the moment. But you keep coming back because once in a blue moon, uh, one gets through the cracks that reflects your vision in which you got to work with people who understood that, who brought their own best game to it, who had their own vision for it that walked side by side with yours, that enhanced it in which you enhanced each other. And the thing that comes out is just like something you are over the moon about. You have created a work of art that has your name on it that accurately reflects what you want it to be. And even better, sometimes it's recognized by people as that and, and, and it's rewarded. And I can tell you by friend, from personal experience, you, you get that, especially if you get it once, holy shit, you will keep coming back and, and, uh, taking the abuse over and over and over again for the hope that that comes through. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good